There are gifts even that ego can bring us if we learn to work with it and learn to find appropriate channels for that energy too. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Benjamin Shalva, a writer, rabbi, yoga instructor, meditation teacher, and musician. He was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and received a rabbinical ordination from the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City. His writing has been published in The Washington Post, Elephant Journal, and Spirituality and Health magazine. His new book is Spiritual Cross-Training, Searching Through Silence, Stretch, and Song. Here's the interview. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here. Yeah, your book is called Spiritual Cross-Training, Searching Through Silence, Stretch, and Song. And I'm excited to uh, talk more about it here in a minute. We'll start like we always do, though, with the parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed, hatred, fear. And the grandson stops, and he thinks about it for a second, and he looks over at his grandfather, and he says, Well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, The one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you how that parable applies to you in your life and in the work that you do. I love that parable. I actually have it framed on my bookshelf. Just, uh, just next to me here. And the parable, I feel, speaks to what I've been struggling with my whole life uh, with these two wolves inside. And I believe that what I found is that I've tried to feed the good wolf and I've tried my best to nurture love and compassion in myself. Um, and I've done that through spiritual work, through meditation, yoga, music, through study, uh, through prayer. And what I found, though, which surprises me over and over again, is that the other wolf, the angry wolf, the, the jealous wolf, the bitter wolf, is a trickster. You know, and um, 
what I found is that even if we try to feed the good wolf, we still need to reckon with the other wolf because the other wolf is hungry too and figures out ways to be fed. And I, I, what I found is that in my own life and work, the best approach is to honor both wolves and to feed the good wolf, but to keep an eye on the other wolf too. Because the point in times when I've felt like the other wolf has gone away, the dark wolf, the bad wolf, those are the times when I've, I've been lulled into a, a, a certain confidence that I think uh, was actually false. So a lot of spiritual cross-training, a lot of my book and a lot of what I've been teaching about the idea of blending spiritual practices, weaving different paths together, has a lot to do with avoiding uh, sidestepping the kind of false sense of security that I think we run into when we work so hard to feed the good wolf and imagine that the bad wolf has gone away. Yeah, my experience is the bad wolf never gets too far away (laughs) and feeds himself pretty well. So I want to start off by reading the first paragraph from your introduction. I think it'll give listeners a good frame of the book as a whole, and I also found it very similar in a lot of ways to, to myself. So you start off by saying, I have been searching all my life. My search began in the meditation hall, moved to the synagogue, and traveled again to the yoga mat. Along the way, I searched in the mountains of Tibet and in the alleyways of Jerusalem, at the keys of the piano and on the theatrical stage. I saw therapists. I took psychedelics and antidepressants. I studied the Bible. I wept and laughed and prayed. I fell in love, married, and fathered two children. I ministered as a rabbi to congregations, universities, summer camps, and prisons. I have never stopped searching. After more than 10,000 hours of this spiritual work, I learned that it produces nothing tangible. What do you mean by that, that it produces nothing tangible? What I found when I was doing this spiritual work was that the pinnacle moments, the, the high points, those moments when you feel a shift inside, a transformation, like you've finally gotten somewhere, you still wake up the next day, just you. You're still the person you were the day before, and you still need to take care of life and and the details, and you still need to, you know, watch what you eat, and you still need to be a kind and good citizen of the world. I found that spiritual work doesn't produce the kind of tangible results that we can hold in our hands and say, look, I did all this work, and here's what I can show for it. This is who I am, and I've changed, and I'm, I'm a better, different person because of all of this effort. And so it was kind of a little depressing, a little disappointing, right? Because I would tell people about moments or realizations, revelations, and yet I knew that I was still me sharing these details of my search. And I was feeling like I wanted to have some kind of proof that I had evolved and changed, that I had, you know, done something with all this, this time and energy, but spiritual work doesn't work like that. And, and, and the outcomes are not ones that we can easily place before someone else and say, this is what it's about. This is what I gained. Right. I recognize that to a large degree. I mean, I think part of what leads a lot of us on spiritual or uh, searches or personal development searches or call them self-improvement projects is this idea that we will somehow someday 
find the right combination or do enough meditation where life will be easy and we won't have to work anymore. Like it will just be done. Right. And so my experience is that that is absolutely not the case. And to your point, life still goes on and you still have to watch what you eat. You still have good moods and you have bad moods. And yet there is something that I feel is different about me in the way that I live my life and, and I act and I behave over maybe the person I was 10 or 15 years ago. So elaborate a little bit more on, you know, or go off of what I just said there and what you think. Well, that's absolutely right. When we look with a long vision, when we look back over five or 10 or 15 or 20 years of spiritual work, I think we do see change, but it's a slow, slow evolution. And what I've found in terms of my own change, is that I've developed more patience. I'm kinder. I have a greater self-awareness. I think about others and their needs more than I used to. I also have found through this spiritual work that I've developed a friendship with God. And I recognize that not everyone listening to this necessarily believes in God or a God or uh, thinks of theology in that way. Mm -hmm. But I'm essentially using the word God as a real stand-in for however you want to conceive of the force and energy and vitality that flows through all of us. And I've felt that through this spiritual work, I've built a relationship with that energy, with that flow that I could never have had without the spiritual work, simply because Friendship is built through time and effort and energy and attention. And over these years, I've given that to God. And because of that, I feel that there's a relationship there. It's active and it's not always something that works out perfectly. You know, it's, there's, it's not always something that, that feels good, but it feels real. And that's something that certainly has developed over these years. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that friendship with life itself is one of the things I've gotten out of the work I've done. So your book refers to spiritual cross-training. So what does that mean? Well, spiritual cross-training is not a set program. Uh, you know, it's not like I'm inviting people to come to, uh, you know, a studio or an ashram somewhere. Shalva's CrossFit. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's some marketing potential there that I'm not tapping. Um, <laughs> but the fact is that spiritual cross-training, as I conceive of it, is our willingness to really adventure and explore and take risks as spiritual practitioners. So I write about three different modalities that in my life I've moved between. Silence, the modality of silence, stretch, and song. And the practices within those modalities, silence involves meditation, stretch involves yoga, and song for me has involved actually singing and dancing and, and uh, expressive art. Mm -hmm. But I say in the book that those aren't the only modalities or the only practices you can be involved in. But what I've looked at in my own life and what I've learned from these practices and the fact that I've either woven them together or myself have jumped back and forth between these different practices at different points in my life, what I've found is that that is actually uh, not a sign of a lack of commitment or a sign that I just won't settle down, you know, <laughs> uh, with uh, one practice and make it my end all be all. But in fact, it's been so beneficial to move 
from one practice to the next. And that might mean that, let's say, for six months or a year or two, I'm really focused in meditation. But then I might move to doing more yoga, to bringing in more of a body awareness. And then I might be involved in yoga for a while. And then at a certain point, I realize, you know what? It's been a long time since I've just grabbed the guitar and you know, sung a song. And so this weaving back and forth from these different practices has really helped me to keep the spiritual work on the razor's edge, to keep it vital and real and a little bit scary, frankly, as opposed to what I found happens when I stay too fixed in one practice. What happens then is spiritual practice becomes hobby. It's become something where I know the contours, I know what to expect, even the good and the bad, and I lose that sense of surprise, that awe and wonder that I think is so vital to forming that relationship with soul and spirit and God. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Your book talks a little bit about this, about trying to strike the right balance between dipping your finger in 50 different things, right? right. And, and just sort of jumping around versus, you know, immersing yourself only in one, say, tradition or practice. And, and it seems that by sort of breaking it down and having sort of these three things that you cycle in and out of, that you've sort of found the practices that work for you that pull from different traditions. But you go pretty deep into those particular practices. That's right. I think that if you're just going to dabble in something, you know, let's say, yeah, I'll do a little meditation, five minutes here, five minutes there, you know, never going to a retreat, never pushing through what you consider to be, uh, you know, a difficult place or, or a limit that you don't want to cross. If you're dabbling, that's fine. But the fruit of the practice comes when we push to a deeper place within the practice. And so I do think it's important to, for instance, if you're, if you're practicing yoga, to learn forms and practice them and get to know them so you don't have to think about, oh, where do my hands go in this place and where do my legs go here? But to really have it become a flow that, that, that you know well and you can move through with a certain sense of confidence. And I don't think confidence is a problem, but at the same time, then it is important that we place ourselves in positions to be destabilized a bit. 
It is important, I believe, as spiritual practitioners to throw ourselves off balance. And Mm -hmm. life will do this for us, frankly, (laughs) more times than not, as I found. But there have also been times where you know, I've started to, I've started to see, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little bit comfortable here and maybe I need to shift things around a bit. And I think that that's wonderful. And what I encourage practitioners to do is to, is to get to know at least two or three different spiritual practices well, so that we can move back and forth and bring these into our lives in different places when we need them. You know, the dabbling for me tends to be a lot, at least when I was younger, what I would do is I would try something, and like our culture is today, and honestly, like a lot of these practices are marketed as, when I didn't get some sort of immediate transformational result, I went, well, this probably isn't the right thing, and I would go on to the next thing, and on and on. And it really took sort of a deeper commitment to some of these things for myself. So meditation in particular, one where I went, okay, you know what? I'm going to find a way to do it every day, consistently day in, day out. You know, that was when I started to get more of a result. Again, not a tangible result and not an immediate result. But as soon as I started sort of doing things for the practice of doing them, the process of it, and less measuring, like, is there an immediate result, the deeper I was able to go into those things. That's right. And the way that I see this fitting with the parable of the wolves, I think here, is that these spiritual practices, by their very nature, are designed to introduce us in great detail to that angry, selfish, egotistical wolf. They are designed to also engender and develop the good wolf, for, of course, and they feed that wolf, but they do that by forcing us to turn and face our demons. And when we dabble, we do so, whether we know it or not, avoiding that confrontation. And to say finally to oneself, look, I'm going to meditate every day, Um, rain and shine, good moods, bad moods. I'm going to stick with this to go deep. What we're saying is not simply, you know, we want to get to know the practice, but we're saying we want to get to know ourselves and we Mm -hmm. want to get to know that wolf that's been in charge of a lot of our life, um, pulling the strings, whether we like it or not. I think that's that's scary. It It has been very scary for me. So I really believe that these practices help us approach that wolf, help us get to know that wolf, help us work with that wolf in a way that allows us to still maintain sanity, health, and a sense also that the good wolf is not far away. Yep. Scary and uh, at the same time, sometimes mind-numbingly boring. (laughs) (laughs) True. One of the things I really related with in the book was you talked about how you get enthusiastic about things, you really get into these things, but then you turn everything into a competition or into ambition. I'm going to just read a line of yours. You said, all my life I've danced this dance. No matter the medium, I'd traded the wide-eyed joy of discovery for calculated ambition. Well, that's a very important line uh, for me. I don't know if everyone reading the book will have that exact type of experience. 
in their own spiritual work. But certainly, a lot of us are very ambitious. A lot of us want to make our mark in the world. We want to shine. And what I found in spiritual practice is that it's open to ego and ambition the way any other venue is open to ego and ambition. If you bring ambition and ego to spiritual work, then it can become just like uh, the career you're trying to rise high with or uh, whatever prize or goal you're, you're currently pursuing. So one of the ways that I've worked with this impulse always to be ambitious in the spiritual realms is by, you know, turning the tables on myself quickly. Uh, you know, when I get comfortable um, with meditation, boom, I take myself then to a different place, to a place where I'm less confident and I practice song and dance for a while. And I allow that to be some of the focus so that essentially I can stay uh, you know, a little bit ahead of that, of that impulse to try to turn spiritual work into some kind of acquisition or some kind of accolade that I can, that I can brag about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something I continue to struggle with. Uh, and, and in fact, it's something I struggle with in a new and interesting way a lot as a teacher now, because once you write a book and once you put yourself out there as a spiritual teacher, there's all sorts of opportunity for the ego to go wild. <laughs> right. And, uh, and I, I, I watch it happen in myself and, and I'm aware of it and try to work with it in my practice and in my life. And thank God I have, you know, uh, uh, family and friends that help keep me in my place as well. And, and, uh, kids that, you know, could care less (laughs) (laughs) how wise, how wise I think I am, but it's hard. It's challenging. It's really challenging to, to, uh, to keep the ego in check. Yeah. I've got a teenager, so it's, uh, you know, any sense you have that your cool is quickly deflated. That's right. (laughs) And that's, and that's a real gift. That's a real gift that they give us. But yeah, I still have to work with it every day. I've become convinced over time that that a lot of the things that we do, it's hard to ever not have some degree of mixed motivation in what we're doing. Like if you're in something like uh, spiritual teaching, like you're describing, or, you know, there's a there's a genuine desire to to help others. There's a genuine desire to become a better person. There's all that. And then there's also more selfish ambitions or different things. And, and I've, I've just found sort of accepting that and trying to work with those in a more skillful way is kind of the best I can get to, you know, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater because there's, there's some things in there that I don't like, but to, to try and just be open to that and accept it. But it is, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing challenge for me too. I think about music like this, like for a long time, you know, I was, I was convinced that I was going to make something out of music. And even after that dream was clearly gone, every time I would pick up an instrument, I would suddenly start feeling like, oh, well, what am I going to do with that? I just wrote a chord progression. Is that going to be a song? Is that going to be a, and it took me a while to learn to kind of just drop all that and get back to being able to play because I love doing it. That's right. And one of the things I, I talk about in spiritual cross training, which is a sadness for me, is that I think because of this ambition and ego, uh, I've missed a lot of beautiful, joyful moments because I've been thinking of them uh, pragmatically, hmm. opportunistically. And, you know, it's, it's not black or white. Obviously, I've had many joyful moments and I've had times when the ego is chilled out and 
I think that one way to look at this, and one thing I do now is similar to what you're saying, which is to work with it as opposed to sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I actually sometimes take to inviting the voice in my head that always wants to acquire and um, become bigger and better. I sometimes invite that voice in my head to join me in a song or a dance, you know? And I don't know if I would say I have an actual conversation in my head, but sometimes I just tell myself, look, I know that you want to make this about becoming bigger and better and more. And why don't we just set that aside for a moment and see what it feels like to just sing or just dance for a moment? We can come back to that later. And it's almost like a little gentle invitation. And what I've found is that sometimes just by sort of acknowledging, look, I have an ego, I have desires, I have anxiety, but at the same time, all that being said, this could be a really fun song to sing if we just let go and sing. And it seems like acknowledging it as opposed to fighting it really helps me to relax and to delight in these moments that are so often available. Yeah, more and more I keep learning that resisting those parts of myself just doesn't work. Right. There's that saying, what you resist persists. And I just have been getting a lot of learning in that lately. Like, just let it be there, and it will usually, it has a much better chance of sort of resolving itself versus like trying to, you know, shove it back into the corner. That's right. And that's why that wolf is always in that parable. (laughs) It's not that... Then the next chapter of the parable is the grandfather says to the grandson, wow, thank God that, (laughs) that the, the, the bad wolf is out of there. Phew, that was a, that was a rough period of life, but now I'm, you know, I'm all set. That's not the parable and it doesn't need to be either. There are gifts even that ego can bring us if we learn to work with it and, and learn to, to find uh, appropriate channels for that energy too. One of the things I like about the parable is just sort of presents it like this is going to be an ongoing battle and it's right. cl- and it's close. By the way, you're going to feed that one, but it's not like it's you know going to be a an outright victory. BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. I'm interested in a story that you talk about briefly, um, and I'm going to see if I say this right, the Kabbalists. Yeah, yeah. The story that God created the universe with light and then hid that light in each and every atom. Can you maybe share that story a little bit more and, and what that means to you? Absolutely. The basis for that, that idea um, comes from the first chapter of the book of Genesis in the Bible, 
And uh, the, the biblical commentators noted right away that something was very strange because on the first day of creation, it says, you know, God says, let there be light. And there was light. But then the sun and the stars were not created on that first day. Uh, they were created, I think, on day three or four. <laughs> I forget. But <laughs> I'll go back and look. <laughs> so the, the question that came up right away was, wait a second, if, if there was light on the first day, but the sun and the stars didn't come till a later day in, in creation, then what was that initial light? I mean, it wasn't, obviously it wasn't sunlight. And obviously this was not a time of electric lights. What are we talking about? And so the Jewish mystical answer was that, no, this is not light like the visual light that we see. This is light as the creative energy that moves the universe. And God began creation with this energy and then implanted it into every atom. And, you know, obviously quantum physics talks about this sort of, the, you know, the, the vibrating energy that is the universe. So here's this idea of this energy, this light that, again, is not of a visible spectrum, but is, is, is some kind of creative force that's moving the universe. But we are creatures of visible sight. We are creatures of the five senses. So it can be very difficult for human beings to sense that light. We feel that it's hidden uh, or we just don't even know it exists. And so we think that what we see is what we get. We believe that everything we see or hear or smell or taste or touch, that is the world. And the Jewish mystics come around and say, well, that's part of the world. But in fact, there is a world beneath this world, an energy that is good and sweet and beautiful and invigorating. And it's our job to find it. And so Jewish practice, from a Kabbalistic perspective, from a Jewish mystical perspective, these are practices enabling us to discover this light and not only bring it out for ourselves, but bring it out for other people. And again, this is not necessarily like anyone will see, but it is something that we sense. And it is something that when we discover this light in interactions or practices or moments, we feel invigorated, energized, and truly alive. Yeah, I love that story. I'd come across it somewhere else. And then was when I saw it again in your book, I was like, I definitely want to explore that a little bit further because it is a very beautiful story. I think that one of the things that's been really a beautiful kind of gift on the side of this whole spiritual cross-training uh, exploration is discovering that so many different traditions, mystical practices are speaking the same language. Yep. Um, and uh, it's not true that every religion says the same thing. I haven't found that to be the case. However, when you get to the very esoteric, mystical, uh, uh, you know, slice of each religion's pie, you you find these voices telling the same story and it's so powerful and wonderful and and that's the story that I'm I'm eager to tell too so you in the book at one point you make a couple different references to it but one of the references is that you you talk about how you know you're you're referencing how you get very serious and involved in these things and you take them very seriously and and that the best teachers 
out there, you know, sort of often said to you, hey, you know, with a little twinkle in their eye, don't take this too seriously. And then at one point you say, I'm going to read this, when that monkey we saw swinging to the trees now clings to our backs, though we stamp our feet and shake our fists, that trickster won't shake loose. When we've exhausted all other options, we always have one weapon left in our arsenal, laughter. I think that levity is a spiritual virtue that is not talked about often enough. And I was, I loved that the way you explained that there. Uh, <laughs> the lesson of laughter is something I have to learn again and again and again. My, my inclination is to take things very seriously. You know, it's actually my mother who has been this great reminder over the years to laugh. And I, I often think of her sort of <laughs> in all sorts of different moments, just kind of chuckling and laughing things off and saying no big deal. And, and she's really been my inspiration for that. And uh, I think that laughter is an incredible gift mm -hmm. because it doesn't deny anything that's gone on. And it doesn't, it's not like you're taking some kind of Pollyannic view of the world you know, everything's all good all the time. No, I mean, you actually, you know, you can laugh in the midst of very difficult situations that are, you know, very real and, and painful. I've tried to remember that, you know, and I've tried to surround myself with people that remind me to laugh, including my kids. And I think that that's uh, something that I continue to feel is, is, is sort of the little secret weapon there in, in the spiritual journey that will help us overcome even the most difficult obstacles. I think so too. It's certainly for me been one of the most powerful tools I've had in my life. And I think of as a deeply spiritual thing that nothing's really off limits um, from a, from a laughter perspective. And often the might just be my sense of humor and Chris's too, for that matter. But you know, the, the darker the subject, sometimes the more important laughter seems to feel like as a way just to cope with some of the things that, that do happen in the world. That's right. An important movie for me was seeing that film. I think I was probably in high school or college when it came out, Life is Beautiful, mm -hmm. that, that um, you know, takes the Holocaust and sort of superimposes on it this, this interesting farcical adventure of this father and son um, so that you're laughing at things that are happening at Auschwitz or whatever, where it would, whatever camp it was. Right. That was so important for me uh, because it gave breath and relief to a subject that, you know, as a, as a, as American Jewish kid, sort of, you know, growing up in this, this era, it's, it's just, um, it's so heavy and overwhelming and frankly unfathomable. And then to just even imagine, because obviously it's not a true story, but to imagine for a moment that there were human moments, there was a twinkle in the eye, even in the midst of something that heavy. To me, that's, that's hope. And that's, you mm -hmm. know, that's something I want to believe in. Yeah, I think there's at the heart of a lot of spiritual life is paradox. And I think it's that, for me, it's that ability to be completely reverent and irreverent almost in the same moment and about the same thing. Like, it feels like there's some paradox there, but I've learned to uh, see paradox as really part of the path more and more. Me too. Me too. And I've learned to more and more value irreverence. And I think that, I think that that's something that can sometimes lead one to lonely places because, uh, to be reverential allows groups to sort of coalesce and develop. And, and, uh, you know, there's sort of a group think that happens in a lot of religious and spiritual settings. And that's built on a kind of sense of reverence, you know, but I found that 
I've really enjoyed asking more and more the, the questions that are inconvenient. And um, I think spiritual cross-training allows for that because you're never trying to get your ID card that says, you know, Benjamin Shalva, yogi, meditator, rabbi, whatever it is that, you know, we sort of throw that identity issue out and we say, look, human being, human being, exploring, searching, growing, allow what happens that happens and ask whatever questions you'd like to ask. Well, I think that is a great place for us to wrap up. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, thanks for your book. I, I greatly enjoyed it. And we will have links to your book and to your website and your Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff at our website at oneyoufeed.net. Thank you so much, Eric. This has been a real pleasure. Really, really enjoyed speaking with you today. Yeah, me too. Me too. See you, Ben. Bye. Take care. You can learn more about Benjamin Shalva and this podcast at oneufeed.net slash Benjamin.